Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine the latest. Today, we discuss the news from Ukraine and Europe and look in detail at the spat between Russia and Lithuania over Kaliningrad. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 21st of June, day 118. And today I'm joined by The Telegraph's Defence and Security Editor, Dominic Nichols, and Assistant Comment Editor, Francis Sternley. I started by asking Dom and Francis for the latest news from Ukraine. Yeah, hi David, hi everyone. It's been fairly static in terms of movement of the front line around um, around Donbass in the east, Kazan in the south, Kharkiv in the north. But that doesn't mean there's there's not been a, a huge amount of uh, violence and and suffering. So firstly, in the in the Donbass region uh, in the east, the, the it's mainly an artillery battle. That, that's been the, the feature for the last few weeks now. Uh, very, very small gains either way. There's thought to be about a thousand Ukrainian troops still uh, in the Azot plant in Severodonetsk. They're, they're, they're not, we don't think they're entirely surrounded, but the but Russia has dropped the three bridges to the west. So they sort of preventing them very easily getting out. But there's, there's um, we're not quite in Mariupol Azov style plant territory yet, but it, it, it is very, very difficult for the Ukrainians there. Um, however, it, as I say, it's mainly an artillery battle, and, and the and the pattern there, as elsewhere, but but it exemplified in the east, seems to be sort of Russia pounds the place with artillery, Ukrainian forces withdraw, the Russians then advance in a very limited scale, very li- limited way that d- due to equipment shortages, morale, leadership issues, etc., etc., and then the Ukrainians counterattack those limited advances, and then the cycle starts again: Russian artillery, etc., etc. So that has been going on for for quite some weeks. That that doesn't seem to be any sign of that of that letting up in the very near future there's not been a huge amount happening just to the northwest of Severodonetsk around this sort of Izium area it, it is slightly more active around there it went very very quiet I remember a few weeks ago general uh, Gerasimov went uh, the head of the of Russia's armed forces visited the region we think to sort of give him a bit of a sort of kick up the bum and, and get things moving um, and there were reports that he was injured that there was a strike that it was all um, it was all quite uh, all quite testy for him there um, so it's been very quiet since then now 
I was with a defence source last week who said actually that the reporting there was very accurate and in fact it was a lot more serious than than was widely known and, and Gerasimov had been uh, wounded not very seriously but he had been wounded and had a bodyguard killed so I mean that attack whatever whatever it was we think it was Ukrainian artillery but um, that attack seemed to be uh, certainly as serious as as was mentioned at the time if not uh, if not more so but it's been very quiet in the Izium region since then that seems to be starting to get going uh, a little bit more now but they've still not been able to really push south from there and equally in Papasna the sort of southern bit of that of that link up operation if they well the link up operation that that Russia have been attempting but not not able to achieve for weeks so Papasna just to the south of of uh, Severodonetsk they've not been able to push out of there still not been able to push out so as i say very very static but but, but very violent to the north around around um Kharkiv been some Russian efforts to push back on that moderately successful Ukrainian counteroffensive of, of about a month ago, but no massive changing of, of hands there in terms of land. Um, and down in the south, around, around um, Kazan, again a number of a number of Ukrainian uh, counteroffensives there, very limited success, very very little ground. They seem to have gained as much ground there as Russia has in the east around Severodonetsk so so not an awful lot and at some and at some casualties uh casualty figures and there does seem to be the growing signs as we've reported before the growing signs of of a of a of an underground network of a resistance movement something like that most obviously in Kherson with uh, re- recent attacks on um, on russian forces there uh, seemingly the the civil society coming together to self organize so so not a huge change in the map if you look at it but a lot of very violent and very bloody activity still going on. Thanks, Dom. Francis, can I come to you? In the midst of this heavy shelling in the east, uh, there's been reports that President Vladimir Zelensky has visited the troops. W- what's happening there? Yes. Oh, thank you, David. We've, we've heard that, as you say, President Zelensky made a secret visit to troops yesterday um, in the eastern city of Lizachansk and in the, in the Luhansk. And... Um, he basically, we don't know much, but a photograph has emerged online of him, as you say, on the front line. And there's a quote of the photographer that's been posted online, quote, he came under fire at that time covertly to support us with his own eyes, to understand us. He was with us. So, yes, as you say, we understand that uh, President Zelensky was actually uh, under fire, as it were, um, on the eastern front of the conflict. Thanks, uh, Francis. And just just to stay with you, um, something we're very keen on talking about is the impact of this conflict, the impact of this invasion on countries uh, around the world. Lord Dannett, the former head of the British Army, has um, has come out with a few interesting things today. Do you want to tell our listeners about that? Yes, well, we've done a big report on this in the paper, which I recommend people to go away and read. But as you say, Lord Dannett was the head of the army from 2006-2009. And he's told the Telegraph, effectively, that we need to stop the cuts and build an army that can stand up to Russia. He calls the UK's land forces, quote, poor cousins of the Navy that must be rebuilt in the wake of the Ukraine, quote, wake up call. And uh, very, he, he doesn't mince his words, to put it mildly. Um, he says, quote, our land capability is not credible and will not be seen by the Kremlin as being a sufficient deterrent. At the very least, planned cuts to the size of the army should be reduced. 
Um, This has been reiterated by Tobias Elwood, who is a Conservative MP and chairman of the Defence Select Committee, who's also told the Telegraph that, quote, all three services are now too small to manage the ever greater burden that we place on them. And um, listeners will be aware that this echoes some comments that we spoke about earlier in the week um, by General Sir Patrick Sanders, who is the new chief of the general staff, who wrote a memo to all soldiers uh, in the armed forces saying that, quote, uh, they must be capable of beating Russia in battle. So quite considerable um, interventions, these uh, speaking to this emergent danger of of through escalation uh, troops potentially being stationed on the ground in Europe and potentially militarily engaging now we should say that that does this mean that this is actually a likelihood in the short to long term not necessarily but clearly it is the job of of those heading the armed forces to be thinking for all eventualities and Unsurprisingly, now the likelihood of some sort of combat engagement uh, of, with troops on the ground with Russia has has increased. So I think we shouldn't be unsurprised by these remarks, though, interestingly, one could argue that they conflict somewhat with the um, uh, some of the analysis made by, by military strategists and, and, and things that actually we shouldn't be thinking so much in the traditional modes of warfare, aka expanding the numbers of troops, building more tanks and things like that, but actually should be learning new lessons from Ukraine, particularly around the importance of investing in drone technology, uh, in investing in, in, in technology which is has clearly proven much more capable of having an effect on defeating Russian soldiers whilst in Ukrainian hands, uh, investing more money in, in terms of, of supporting other armies around the world who are more likely to be fighting on the front line, whether against Russia or against, you know, God forbid, a, a China and invading in Taiwan. So um, whilst in no way am I dismissing the remarks of, of, of these um, very prominent commentators on military affairs, I think it's worth saying that actually it needs to be part of a, a much wider conversation about uh, defence strategy moving forward. But I'm sure that Dom has a lot of thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd just say that the, the, the problem with learning or taking lessons from a conflict is you've got to be really careful about are you taking lessons from this conflict or from conflict in general? And you've, you've got to be careful that you don't extrapolate from from what you're seeing in front of you right now, which will change over the next few months. And actually, the, some of the lessons that we that might be very appropriate now in Ukraine might not be in a, in a few months' time. Yeah, this is this is far from over. And so some of the... Uh, some of the, the the glaring mistakes we've seen from Russia, but equally, you know, Ukraine have, have made faults as well. They've just seem seemingly shown themselves quicker to to change. I'm more willing to change their their structures and their and their tactics. But we've seen a lot of mistakes from Russia. Um, that doesn't mean they can't change. And so, it'd be very uh, ill advised to take lessons right now and say, "Ha ha, this this is what we're going to learn from Ukraine." And even more broadly, say, "This is what we've learned about combat." I mean, the, the thing about drones, it, it is it is the employment rather than the the capability. The desire to look over the hill and see what the baddies are up to has been there since since time immemorial. You know, since since telescopes, since we had uh, people, generally young young boys, in the crow's nest at the top of ships, looking looking over the horizon to try and see what what's what's coming. So the desire to to see what's over the hill that that's been around forever. Now it seems to be happening with um, 
and yeah, sorry, just go back a step. So we're, we're quite used when we think about drones, the big sort of strategic drones, the Reapers, the Predators, and all, and all the rest of it that we saw in Iraq and Afghanistan. And they're great, but they're they're not good in a contested in contested airspace. They, they can't look look after themselves. They are basically your the, the operator is looking through a drinking straw. What you see off the ground is a tiny piece of real estate. Which is great if you're trying to be very precise with the application of of lethal power, but it's not good for having situational awareness and seeing what's going on around you and and um, and picking up any any surface wave missile launches or, or what have you. So those great strategic drones, terrific in uncontested airspace, they wouldn't be they'd just be knocked out of the sky now. Um, I mean they they have a very low radar cross section, but we are seeing some of the TB2 Barakta drones that Ukraine is using uh, being knocked out. Same for the Orlan 10 drones that Russia is using. So, so they're not a panacea, but what they do give you is the is the ability to to see over the hill, literally, and sometimes you know, dozens of kilometres away. Now, if you marry that with with weapons, either on that platform or linked seamlessly to another another platform, then you can bring a weight of fire very accurately to bear in a very short space of time. So, drones is a development; it's an evolution, not a revolution. And I think we'd be very careful. To, to draw too much too soon from this conflict um, or, or from any conflicts. Now, the two, the two people you, you mentioned there, Tobias Eld and Richard Danner, you know, very, very, very seasoned um, defence watchers, both served for a long time, both of them in, in the military. Um, one of them was the chief of the general staff and one of them w- wished he could be, <laughs> maybe both wished they could be. Um, you know, they know what they're talking about. They're not, they're not, they're not flying off the, off the hip. Um, so they should be listened to. They do, they do deserve... Uh, an audience, but just just couch it in that wider context. I would I would suggest. Um, however, it is it is fascinating to to see some of the lessons that are that are coming out of it. And and you, you it's all, there's almost kind of first mover advantage here. What? But do you keep saying we're not going to take the lessons yet? We're not going to take the lessons, and then suddenly you 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 become you're behind the behind the curve. So at what point do you say right? This this is a firm lesson that we need to build on. We need to invest time, money, training establishments, um, and so on and so forth uh, to to actually bring into our military forces. And those other things we can just sort of take a bit of risk on. So it is it is an impossible situation to get right. I think the idea is that you don't. Well, as Michael Howard, the historian, said, you know, are, you can't be right in in, in military procurement and planning and, and strategizing. It's just too expensive. It takes too long. You will break the exchequer if you try to be right. The answer is to not be so wrong that when the threat reveals itself, you can't quickly adjust your systems and processes and weapons and all the rest of it to to face that threat. So I think with with that in mind, it, it's it's uh, possible to talk about some. Um, lessons identified the military is now very good at doing lessons identified rather than lessons learned because there's a massive gulf between identifying things and learning from them um until until there's a change of culture a change of practice that's that's inculcated then you haven't fully learned that lesson you haven't embedded it in your systems and processes so it's very good that this conversation is is happening and starting and i'm not suggesting these two these two individuals are saying that these are firm firm lessons but i just ask everyone to, to just to wrap it in that context if you've got to be careful about are you drawing a lesson from this war or from general war francis would you like to come back on that and then i think we do need to speak about what's happening in kaliningrad please yes um, just very briefly i would just say uh, to re- to underline um what don was saying there uh, it's been fascinating seeing how the remarks made by boris johnson in november um have ne- uh, regarding and i quote this, this is the remark 
it's now or never for the UK armed forces. We have to recognise that the old concepts of fighting big tank battles on the European landmass are over and there are other better things that we should be investing in. As I say, it's, it's interesting seeing how that remark was originally being talked about as being a disastrous sort of comment um, given what then happened in Ukraine months later and of course I think the remarks that I've just been talking about from Lord Dannett and others would perhaps agree that that was a disastrous comment but um, as I say there are others who would say that actually it may well be true given the disastrous um, uh, thing uh, experience of of, of, uh, of tanks etc in, in Russia that there are other things and other weapons and other ways of thinking about war that we should be investing in instead so i say i don't have a, a view on that i'm not i'm not a military expert but i think it's interesting flagging the debate and seeing how that remark by boris johnson is now being considered by some as wise and others uh, as, as very foolish indeed um so yes uh, certainly a, a, a topic that no doubt we will return to thank you very much uh, francis so let's talk a little bit about the what's in the title of today's space and podcast kaliningrad can we start from the beginning? Quickly, what is Kaliningrad? What have the Lithuanians done and how, how did the Russians react? Yeah, so please, geographists, uh, do not bash me. Um, so Kaliningrad is an exclave. So, not, so an enclave is a, a piece of territory that is completely surrounded by uh, another, another territory. An exclave is a piece of territory that is outside of... Oh, God, I got it completely mixed up. Anyway, Kaliningrad is a little lump of land that is Russian territory on the Baltic Sea, but surrounded by Poland to the south and Lithuania to the east. So it does not have a uh, it is not completely surrounded by another state. Um, It is part of Russia, although Russia has to rely on air or the maritime corridor or the ground route, most notably through Belarus. There's a a very short corridor from the Belarusian border to uh, Kaliningrad, but in order to get anything in there. So Lithuania has has halted rail supplies across its territory, saying it was enacting EU sanctions of um, uh, coal and other other materials that that have been um, sanctioned uh, against Russia. And Kaliningrad, as part of Russia, um, is therefore on on this list. And Lithuania said that it's not going to allow um, supplies from Russia proper into Kaliningrad. Now, this did not go down well um, with with authorities in Kaliningrad and in, and in Moscow, saying this this was an outrage. It was uh, illegal, internationally legal, against international law, saying that there would be repercussions. Um, yeah, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. You, you can you can imagine what came out of uh, came out of the Kremlin. Uh, but interesting, I, I think this is if you look at what's happening just to the to the north. So in the Baltic Sea, you've got Sweden and Finland who are part of JEF, the, the Joint Expeditionary Force. Almost certainly about to join NATO. There are still some hiccups there with with Turkey's um, view on that, but I think I think they will be ironed out. I think Sweden and Finland will become part of NATO. In which case, Kaliningrad is is literally surrounded by NATO members, and the Baltic Sea effectively becomes uh, an internal NATO lake, if if you like. So very very difficult in the event of hostilities for. Or in, even increased tension for for Russia to to move anything, let alone reinforce um, the Baltic fleet, which is split between Kaliningrad and St. Petersburg. Reinforce that by the maritime route. Very difficult to do it by air if if um, if it if it did become a hot war. Um, and also the ground that um, is it the Sivalaki Gap, I think, between Belarus and Kaliningrad. Uh, I don't know if we can check on uh, check on, on on a map, but I think it's called um, Sivalaki Gap, uh, Sivalki Gap. Yeah, so so very easy to cut Kaliningrad off 
um, and it's it's hugely powerful for for Russia. They've got a lot of uh, electronic warfare equipment there because it's it's sort of neatly positioned. As we say, ah, it's surrounded by NATO. They say, ah, brilliant, we're in the middle of NATO. So you know, it cuts both ways. Um, and they do they do as I say, they they it's one of the home uh, it's the home headquarters of the Baltic Fleet uh, and one of the major ports for it. So you know, it's a significant piece of real estate. Um, but I think this action by Lithuania, okay, fine, enacting EU sanctions, great. But I think it's just just a little nudge, just a little reminder, just as much as as Putin likes playing these sort of geopolitical little markers and just laying them down, a little a little nudge here and there. I think it just says to Russia, you know, we 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 can have a go here if we if we wanted to. We can make life very difficult. And if you think about what's happening in the Black Sea and particularly around Snake Island and and uh, Ukraine's obviously natural desire to get that back because it's part of part of Ukrainian territory but the effect that has if that's in Ukrainian hands the effect and the and the and the threat they can hold over the the black sea fleet if there's a, a there's only a short hop skip and a jump from action that uh, Ukraine and NATO could take to threaten the black sea fleet and the baltic fleets then suddenly Putin's idea of having a global navy and being able to um, impact world events through the maritime flank could be under under threat so uh, so I'm not suggesting that's Anytime soon, that might not even be the the prime motivator for for Lithuania's actions. But it just reiterates how vulnerable Kaliningrad is and how close it could be before t- two very significant maritime forces of uh, Russian maritime forces are um, are held at, at threat. Francis, do you want to come in on this? I just struck me the the rhetoric coming out of Moscow, which is very, very strong, um, talking about the the sort of threat to their national interests and their right to defend the national interests. It just really reminded me of of the kind of remarks that were made and not taken particularly seriously um, prior to the invasion of Crimea in 2014. Now, I'm not in any way saying that, that, that there's a likelihood of that. Lithuania, of course, being a NATO member and the dangers involved in, in any escalation uh, that on that front but I just say that uh, flag it as I think sometimes you know this this story is not getting the airtime I think that perhaps it should and there are dangers in that that we we sometimes are are focused in the west on uh sort of uh, other areas when we lose it and, and and we don't see the, perhaps the map of of Europe uh, in the same way that the Russians do, and clearly they see Kaliningrad as 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 an absolutely key strategic place, as they see Crimea, and because the West didn't perhaps focus on these territories um, traditionally, that has led eventually to there being calamitous events that have taken place in them. So I would just say that that I think we should take these these uh, this issue um, extremely seriously because no doubt uh, Moscow are. Well, thank you very much, Dom, and thank you, Francis. Um, let's, if there's nothing more to be said about that, let's move on to a story, Dom, I know you were writing about in your, in your dispatches newsletter that Ukrainian forces have claimed their first successful use of Western-donated uh, anti-ship missiles. Um, what's the significance of this? Can you talk, talk to us about that? This links to the point we were just making. So this is Snake Island, northwest corner of the Black Sea, been fought over since the very first days of the war you'll remember the whole the whole you know russian warship go sink yourself comments from the uh, from the defenders on snake island i paraphrase um, and there's been a push recently ukraine have been asking they've been the main ask has been for long range artillery but just behind that they've been after anti ship missiles that they can fire from the from the land um primarily but also, also from other other platforms but primarily land land based anti ship missiles to uh 
not only to retake Snake Island, but just push the Black Sea Fleet away from the northwest corner of the uh, of that of that part of water, piece of the water. Um, because by doing that, it, it removes the threat, not entirely, but but reduces the threat markedly to of an of an amphibious assault on on Odessa. So they've been seeking these anti ship missiles. We we know they've had some because the Moskva, the flagship of the Russian um, Black Sea Fleet, was sunk a few weeks ago. But we think were two um, Neptune missiles. Now this attack over the weekend seems to be from um, harpoon missiles uh, supplied. Not entirely sure. I think maybe maybe the Netherlands supplied uh, supply the harpoons. But again, something that, that Ukraine has been calling for for a long time. And it um, apparently two missiles struck a resupply vessel that was taking um, kit and and personnel to Snake Island. So this not only it continues the fight there um, for control of Snake Island, but also suggests that it, you know, if, if Ukraine now have a shore-based anti-ship missile capability, then that that just, again, makes the you know, com- commanders of the Black Sea Fleet vessels just very, very nervous, and, and rightly so. These are hugely capable um, items. Um, I would imagine they would need to be looked after, hidden, protected, because they will be a prime target for for Russian counterattacks. It really it really is a, a potent threat if it's if it's at land and it can strike. I think I, I mean Snake Island is only sort of fifteen to twenty miles offshore, so it's not it's not massive. But that's still quite a long range in terms of missiles. And you know ships are ships are really big, and when you're on them, and and they're really not that big when you're on the shore looking at them. So to to be able to get a, a missile accurately to to strike these things, it's 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 a hugely potent capability that that Ukraine have rolled out. How many harpoons they have, we don't know. Um, they will probably use them fleetingly um, and only when they are uh, well, as sure as you can be of a hit. I would imagine there'd been some... I mean, we've seen on social media, sorry, of dr- drone footage. We don't think the drone was involved in the targeting. That was probably just there to uh, for, for eyes on. We think the, um, the way the harpoons operate, they, they sort of are able to be... Um, laid onto the target themselves, but something's got to tell them that there's a ship on the way to Snake Island or to hit it in the first place. So when you marry up these different capabilities, the drones and the and the shore-based anti-ship missiles, then you have a very potent force that can um, firstly, hopefully, retake Snake Island and put it in Ukrainian hands. But that in itself then threatens the, the Black Sea Fleet. And it also might be part of some future solution to the whole grain um, problem, getting the grain out by the maritime flank. I know there's talk of getting out by road and rail and changing the gauge on the rail lines and so on and so forth. But, you know, it, maritime is the is the big beast here when it's, um, in terms of getting the, the sheer numbers, the quantity of grain out that, uh, that the world needs. Um, so having Snake Island in Ukrainian hands is a massive step forward in that regard. So, so this I think this is quite quite significant that these the harpoons were seen for the first time um, destroying a, a ship. And, and judging by the size of the explosion that's widely available on social media, we're pretty certain it, it sunk the uh, sunk the vessel. You're not coming back from that, but just holding that threat over over Russia um, is very significant. And I think um, I think there'll now be a, a big push. We might even see some of these. Some of the, the the limited stock of precision guided munitions that we believe Russia has left employed trying to look for these things along the uh, the southwest coast of Ukraine. Thank you very much, Dom. I think that segues neatly into the next thing we want to talk about in terms of missiles. Vladimir Putin's may be making some noises about the Satan II. Francis Durnley, do you want to take this one? What's he been saying? Yes, well, we've covered this story before several weeks ago now uh, about the so-called Satan II inter 
continental ballistic missile. I mean, I think, to, as Dom said at the time, how one can uh, can call it uh, Satan 2 and think you're on the right side uh, it's, <laughs> it beats me. But anyway, um, uh, the this Vladimir Putin has started talking about this again. He said that uh, this missile will be deployed by the end of the year and, quote, in televised remarks, we will continue to develop and strengthen our armed forces, taking into account potential military threats and risks. And um, just to give a little bit of context to this uh, to this uh, weapon, uh, it's officially named Sar- it's officially named Sarmat. It reportedly has a range of eighteen thousand kilometers. That's eleven thousand miles, and can deliver between ten and fifteen nuclear warheads at hypersonic speeds. Now, as we've discussed in the past, I think there's a very strong chance this is more for a domestic audience, although, of course, international observers will be commenting on this, uh, no doubt, and taking it extremely seriously. Um, but this is uh, no doubt Putin trying to uh, to make the point that, that the Russia cannot be threatened. So some uh, classic Soviet-style saber-rattling. Um, but it is interesting, isn't it, in the context of what we were talking about here and, and, and the West thinking about its own military strategy, that the nuclear conversation has almost sort of come off the table now. I think uh, my understanding is um, that behind closed doors, there have been some conversations taking place that have effectively um, uh, between the West and between uh, Russia that were saying to Russia, Western diplomats, that if you are want any chance of of a of a of a peace deal in the short term that this co- this rhetoric around uh, uh, deploying nuclear weapons against the west against ukraine needed to stop and indeed i think it has for large part, um, not least uh, two weeks ago, uh, I think it was two weeks ago, when the Russian ambassador to the UK said that there would be no use of uh, nuclear weapons on Kiev um, or on Ukraine generally. Uh, I think that was a, d- a deliberate attempt to show that, that you know, the Russia, Russia were responding uh, to, to, to that. Um, although, of course, one shouldn't take too seriously anything that, that, that Russia say um, because uh, of, of the, well, for obvious, for obvious reasons. But, um, yes, yeah, so the nuclear threat has not, has not been really part of the conversation. And I think that's partly because the West clearly don't perceive this as being um, likelihood. But it does speak to a... A broader question that I think the West has been engaging with, and certainly we've talked about on this podcast, which is, you know, at what point does the the threat of of the sort of the, of, of a nuclear escalation mean that there is no chance ever, in any eventuality, of a Western intervention in uh, in Ukraine or or in, in, God forbid, in a in some sort of um, encroachment on NATO territory by Russia. I mean, if if the threat is such that there was no chance that the West would ever engage, then Lord Dannett's remarks, Tobias Elwood's remarks about creating a land army and, and potentially fighting Russia on soil would be an irrelevance. Um, so this is a whilst the nuclear threat, I think, has dissipated into the background largely. I think it is still very relevant to all of these conversations that we've been having. And no doubt um, Putin's remarks today, whilst being largely articulated for a domestic audience are are relevant and should be taken note of hence why we're we're talking about it today well thank you very much francis uh dom if you don't have anything to add to that there are no other updates i've got a few questions from listeners here that i think are, are interesting um can i lob this one from graham at both of you um he he writes 
Presumably your guests and co-hosts are privy to some sensitive information that may not be suitable to be shared on the podcast, considering it may put active military actions and lives in jeopardy. As journalists, are you always explicitly told what you can and cannot share by your sources, or do you also have to self-censor the information that you have? I think that's interesting, hopefully for our listeners, just to give a sense of Dom and Francis and you know, how, how, how we work. Yeah, okay, well, I'll go, I'll go first on that one then. I mean, yes, Graham, you're absolutely right. There is a there, there is a tension there. We are, as journalists, sometimes very, very lucky to receive information that um, that would not be put out into the public domain. And that is mainly for background and context so that we so we, we better understand the information that then is put out um a, a very a very a simple analogy although nothing to do with the ukraine war is for example uh, in terms of domestic security if, in terms of um, uh, terrorist actions and what have you so so we are um able to be briefed by by security officials about how things work and 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 how counterterrorism operations uh, might be conducted so that the next time that there is a there is an atrocity there is a terrorist event for example in in the UK somewhere when the immediate call from the public is well did they slip through the net we are better able to put the the context there so we can say well well the simple answer is yes they did slip through the net but let's have a look at the size of the net let's have a look at how many fishes there are and let's have a look at how many fishermen there are putting in the net right i've mangled that analogy too far but the point is that it's only by understanding the wider context that we're then more intelligent consumers of the information that we get when the when the day comes and in that way we are better able to put it across to the public so we're not we're not given secrets we're not we're not taken in by you know, sort of secret secret briefings and we're, we're told what to say by you know the military and the security sources and what have you but we do have a relationship with um in in the uk here with with whitehall have a relationship with the pentagon and, and elsewhere around the world but um but but it's not as if it's it ever steps over the line it it is as i say better to better understand the context that the information is then um, drops into at a later date now when we're out and about, we do sometimes see things that um, that might be graded secret or that would be helpful to the enemy. If you, if you, um, whichever enemy that is, if if you started reporting sort of numbers of troops or the types of tanks that you see in Tank Park X or the the missiles that you saw on aircraft Y being flown over wherever, and it's then up to, I'm um, some sometimes you're. Um, whoever you are, if you're with a, a media handler, for example, they might they might say, "Oh, I, I request you don't you don't show that or you don't report that," um, and it's all down to your relationship then with them. And um, if you do, then go and report stuff that you really shouldn't do. You know, you're not going to be invited back. You're not going to be given the the, the decent interviews, the good the good um, the access to the senior officials and politicians and, and what have you. But also, there is a there is a moral angle to it as well, and this is where this this is the this is the the bit where Russia are able to lean in and say, "Ah, oh, well, of course you would say that you're a Western stooge," but you know it's down to your your personal morality about what you what you feel you should give away. There is a I'm not going to deny there's a natural journalistic tension or, or desire to scoop the opposition to be the first one with a story. But the flip side of that is that um, we all have to sleep at night. We have to be be comfortable with our choices. I'm ex army, as you as you may well know. I've got lots of. Uh, Lots of mates still still in the military, uh, quite senior levels now because I've been out for a few years, and um, you know, quite frankly, I'm not going to do anything to put their lives at risk or the lives of the the men and women in the, under their command. 
Um, and so there's a, there's an element of of self censorship, even though it might it might make a great story, and I can just just see it now. But but that's not um, that's not how the game's played. So there's there's an element of contextualising it. There's an element of personal morality, and there's an element of of being given certain access that that would be denied in the future if you if you uh, if you are um, play loosely with other people's confidences. I would suggest, but I'm sure Francis will have um, a much more coherent view than me. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. I thought that summed up the, the tensions very well, actually. I mean, I can only speak for myself, and obviously I'm not as privy to, to some of the um, defence briefings that, that Dom is. Um, so I'm talking more in terms of some of the information that's relayed to me through sources online, over email, Twitter, social media, and things like that. And indeed, as, as we're speaking, uh, I'm receiving messages from people about operations that are taking place currently. Um, but do I report on those in, live, as it were, or rumours? No, because I feel that it's important, and, and it's particularly on, in relation to this podcast, that we are summarising what has happened and are analysing its significance as opposed to speculating about what is happening at that very moment on the field. Um, and, you know, in our reporting could... Uh, have some kind of negative consequence for those engaged in that. So that would be the only example I think of of, of self-censorship is I, I prefer to, whilst we're taking in this information, of course, in a way that will inform what we what we say and what we write, um, in, in, when it's inv- involving, you know, uh, say an operation taking place in real time, I, I prefer to, to hold my tongue on that until we've, we're able to sort of corroborate what has really has really occurred. Um, but certainly, yes, there is a lot of information that, 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 that circulates around. And, and as Dom has, has articulated, there are, there are moral issues at stake that all journalists have to, has to think very, very deeply and carefully about. And, and, and I think it's it's important. I mean, you know, the media gets a lot of a lot of flack um, for, for for various things on uh, less obviously less about Ukraine, but when reporting sort of domestic policies. But should say that you know there are very very strict rules about um, what, how we conduct ourselves as journalists and, and and what we can publish, how we publish. We run so many things past lawyers and things like that. And so I just underline to to, to, to listeners that um, you know we're very careful what we write and what we say, and and it's not a sort of complete free for all. Well, hopefully, Graham, that answers um, some of your questions. Just just on the point of being Western stooges, um, we had news today that the Telegraph's website uh, has been blocked in Russia. Francis and Dom, do you want to comment on this? Yeah, so they say this is because of our reporting of the war and specifically an article that I wrote with Natalia the day before the war started. So on February the 23rd, we wrote about the Russian mobile crematorium that was that was getting being um, prepared for the operation. So they've cited that article in particular, but the Telegraph's coverage of the war more broadly, saying that it's, well, I don't know, lies, misinformation, blah, 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 we don't like you, all that kind of stuff. So they've, they've banned us from, from Russia, um, which is, which is I, I suppose, understandable. It was only going to be a matter of time, I guess. I've, I've rang up the embassy here, the Russian embassy, and, and tried to ask, why? Why they did it? What I, what they didn't like about my article about the war? Um, they they didn't offer a comment. I've sent them messages. I've sent them something on Twitter as well. Um, I, I imagine when I get back to my desk after this Twitter space, after this pod, that um, that I'll have loads of it, loads of messages to to ring them back because they'll they'll clearly want to talk about this. Um, but no, I, I I can only assume that we're doing the right thing. Um, it's a shame. Okay, this this is I stand by our journalism. I um. 
as as most people, I'm sure, we, I've been getting get, been getting bashed, been hacked a few times since the war started, um, but we keep going. It, it, I think we're doing the right thing. I think we're talking to the right people. I think we're putting it across in the way that we should. So, um, so it's a shame that they've done this. Uh, there is a an element of badge of honour, I suppose. You know, I'd be quite happy. I'd, I'd rather people did have access to our journalism. But if if Russia are so inflamed um, by our by our journalism that they have to just stop the voice, then um, I think we're probably doing something right. Yes, I would just echo that. I think it, it speaks to, you know, you, you wouldn't ban a, a, an enterprise you didn't think was a, a threat in some way. And obviously to the Russian state, free journalism, uh, free debate, discussion is is now uh, considered uh, an enemy. <laughs> and uh, and so, um, as, as, as Dom rightly says, I think it is something to be seen as a badge of honour, frankly. Um, I think as well, um, it's worth saying that just because information is banned in a country, this took place in the Cold War, but of course is, is even more true now in, in, in an interconnected world by the internet, uh, that, that information always bleeds through, that we shouldn't sort of fall for the trap into thinking that just because we're banned and various journalists have been sanctioned and other enterprises within Russia have been closed down, shut down, that the that, that, that truth doesn't still filter through. And indeed, you know, there's numerous talk about VPNs being used by, by Russian people to access accurate information, um, apps like Telegram and WhatsApp and things like that for sharing information. Now, we obviously don't know the, the, the scale of that. It's very difficult for us to have accurate figures. But whenever any state tries to suppress knowledge, very often it makes that knowledge more precious and ultimately, in in the long run, uh, leads to more people being intrigued by that information, I would argue. And whilst it can take a long time, that drip, drip, drip tends to eventually uh, erode um, the, the sort of solidarity of these bands and eventually things can, can fall down altogether. And so, um, yes, I, I think it, we shouldn't see it necessarily as, as, as something that is going to succeed, particularly not in the age of, of the internet and, and where despite uh, any authoritarian government's desire to, to ban something, it's, uh, it's, it's, I'd argue it's, it's much harder for it to succeed in that in, in, in the world that we inhabit today compared to the one, let's say, of, of 50 years ago. And very quickly from me, I'd say, of course, if you do listen to this podcast uh, or listen to this Twitter space from Russia or from Belarus, uh, do get in touch. Do let us know how you get your information, how, uh, how how you see the war, how you try and find out what's what's really going on on yourself. Um, it'd be very, very interesting to to hear from you. Um, we're coming to the towards the end of our time, I think, today. Um, Dom and Francis, can I ask for your final thoughts, please? What should our listeners be thinking of uh, over the next few days? What should we be paying attention to in the Russian invasion of Ukraine? I'll happily give. Oh, sorry, I'll happily give Dom the the, the final word. Um, I was just going to to mention something that I didn't have a chance to talk about yesterday, which is um, Finland and Sweden. Um, so listeners will be aware, of course, that Finland and Sweden both wanted to to join NATO and have, uh, have, have, have marked their intention to do so. The anticipation was, of course, that that would be a speedy process. Um, but it would now appear that uh, Turkey, who already obviously had raised uh, I- issues around their membership, given their citing for them 
security concerns of, uh, of Finland and Sweden allowing certain um, entities ho- that, who they perceive as being hostile to the Turkish state as as being able to sort of live and operate in, in those countries. It was believed that some sort of compromise would be reached fairly swiftly and that Turkey would, uh, would acquiesce and that therefore Finland and Sweden would be joining NATO sooner rather than later. It would now appear that, 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 that this is, is actually a very serious stumbling block and that that may delay things further. What sort of timescale, I don't know. But it is interesting, isn't it, that we've not sort of ter- talked about sort of Turkey too much. But, uh, but clearly, uh, the, the, the tensions that are in play with, with Turkey and its own sort of shift towards a sort of more authoritarian style of government and, uh, and its relationship with, with Putin, whilst at the same time, of course, op- um, selling many drones to, to Ukraine and operating, I would say, in a way that it's still certainly been helpful in terms of trying to increase the pressure on Russia, particularly around naval blockades and things like that, that it is still a, a country that is that is playing both sides, as it were, and clearly is is also operating in a way that, that is trying to think about how it can, in a sort of realpolitik sense, benefit from uh, from its ability to, to veto uh, a new uh, state being... Um, joining joining NATO so or two new states should I say so I think we can expect there to be some, some more attention put onto Turkey in the coming days and weeks and I'd expect there to be they're making several demands that uh, in order to for, for for NATO to get that unified front that it wants um, for there to be certain concessions made towards Turkey um, but as I say, on the broader picture, it is unfortunate, I think, because it is yet another sort of crack in the uh, unity of the West on the approach to the war, which Putin is clearly hoping to make the most out of. Yeah, I, I think I'll just just we're, we're running out of time. So I, I don't want to take away anything of that. I, I just think my final thought would be just this is largely a battle for for truth and fact. All the things that... Um, uh, that Francis just said there about Turkey and about NATO and Finland and Sweden's accession to NATO is absolutely true. And and I think it's just important that we, we don't take away or, or don't allow Russia to have room to, to force in these other narratives that are not correct or that are demonstrably false. We had the Peter the Great moment a couple of weeks ago when we now see that this is not about uh, denazification and um NATO encroachment it's a, it's a it's an ego trip and this is a land grab and we see it today in Dmitry Peskov the Kremlin spokesman's response to Lithuania about the the EU sanctions and there's all these false narratives and we need to be really we need to work hard we're doing our best here to to find the information and put it in front of of people who who want to listen to us and thank you for that but you know this is a constant battle for narratives and a battle for ideas and and Russia is is relying on us on our on our fatigue on ukraine fatigue creeping in and i I just implore people if you can give us 10 minutes that's great you give us 45 or whatever been rambling on for now 47 that that's even better thank you thank you thank you but any time you can give is is terrific each day because this is a battle for ideas and a battle for narratives and it's almost the last man standing wins and and we're, we're going to keep standing we just hope you can you can stand with us and keep receiving this information, um, and we'll give it out as best we can because there there are there are powers out there that do not want real information to be to be to be delivered to sentient 
sophisticated consumers of journalism, which is what everybody is who's listening to this, and banning the Telegraph today and and trying to turn this fight, the, you know, Turkey's concerns about Sweden and Finland into something bigger and Lithuania's actions into something that it's not. I mean, this is they're constantly chipping away and I just implore people to, just to hang in there, hang with us and, and you know, we'll, we'll bring you the information. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app and leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly with us by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Sophie Coe. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.